You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew 21. We're going to look at Matthew 21 this morning. Um, I love Summers and Ames. I really do. Not just because I love the heat and I love being outside and all that comes with summer, but I feel like summers in Ames, specifically for us as a church family, it's a strategic time to speak into the core of our church family. The college, many of the college students are gone. Any college students that are here, we love you and so thankful for you that you're here. But many college students leave for the summer months and that leaves us, those that call this church our home and this city our home year after year after year. And I, I find that summer is our strategic time for the Lord to recalibrate us, to kind of reset, resettle our foundation in him. And as I was just praying for the future earlier this spring, this was like April time frame, the Lord led me to Matthew 25, of which we're not gonna be there this morning, so you heard me right. Matthew 21 is where we're gonna be, but Matthew 25, there's this story where Jesus likens his return for the church like a wedding party awaiting their bridegroom. And so he says there's these, this, this bridal party of 10. Five of the 10 are foolish and five are wise. And what is it that makes, what, se- what separates the wise from the foolish in this, this bridal party that's waiting for their bridegroom to, to return? Well, it's, it's this sense of prepared expectation versus apathy and laziness and kind of being lulled into this sloppy way of life. The foolish ones within the bridal party, they were kind of taken for granted the fact that the, the bridegroom would ever come. So there they were kind of dozing in and out of their, their call to steward the return of the bridegroom. And then there was the, the five wise ones within the bridal party, and they were expectant. They were trimming their wick and preparing the oil so that they had enough to, for when the, to meet, meet the bridegroom when he came with their lamps. And this struck me when I read it, and actually in my own time with the Lord brought me to tears with this sense of urgency for our church. Urgency to be ready for what the Lord wants to do in our midst. It is possible to miss out on what God wants to do. And I just felt like the Lord downloaded in my spirit this kind of blueprint for this summer of which I lay down at his feet every single day, but a series of messages the Lord has put on my heart for this summer to recast vision for what the house of God is meant to be, what his precious, precious church is meant to be, the church that he paid his own, that he bought with his own blood, that he redeemed with his precious blood. There was this sense of acceleration in my spirit this April, the sense that the time is of the essence The time is running short. I'm not predicting things. I'm saying in the spirit, there's a sense of let's not let this pass us by. Let's not be lulled into apathy. Let's go. Let's be prepared. Let's be of that camp. Those five that were wise, that were ready for the bridegroom when he came, when he came in glory. I want us to look at Matthew 21. It's a really challenging passage. Verse 12 This is after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
the triumphal entry of the king, the humble king riding on a donkey, people, the humble in heart recognized him as different than other sages and healers and rabbis. There's something different about this one. And they obviously wanted a political leader of which he would not be. But they prophetically were singing rightly that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the anointed one. And after that triumphal entry, he enters the temple, really the temple courts, and he cleans house. And so this morning may feel like a cleaning of house, but um, I believe it's the spirit leading us. I pray you receive. I've been, and we were praying uh, with the elders earlier this morning, just praying that God would give us hearts to receive what his word is saying. This is me, not me preaching at us or harping at us. I believe it's the word of God cutting us open. That's what the word of God does. If we allow his spirit to do that surgery and operation in our hearts. So could we just pray before we dive into God's word? Could we do that? Because I really feel like we need the spirit of God this morning. Lord, we need you. We say it. We've exalted you. We say it. We've said, Lord, come rest on us. And how silly would it be for us to sing that song, but then to harden our hearts when it comes to the opening of your word God, would you do surgery in our hearts? We don't want to tamper with things that are sacred and holy in a trivial or light way. God, we don't. And your church, your church is at the tip of the spear in terms of things that you set apart as holy and sacred. And so God, I pray that we would see that fire in your eyes this morning as you look at us and as you look at your church in our generation Would we see your vision for your bride, for your body? Would we, God, would we get a glimpse of your heart for your church? Give Give us repentant hearts. Give us tenderness of heart. your precious name, amen. So I wanna, I wanna set the picture right here. Jesus is entering the temple. And just FYI, the temple is the precursor for us. Paul says, don't you know, you all are the temple of God. And so Jesus is stepping in to his house, in a sense. And the site is um, dumbfounding, really. Here are these people really making a profit off of the name of the Lord, making a racket out of it. There aren't too many times you see meek and mild Jesus angry, but this is one of those moments. There's this righteous anger that rises up in the heart of God, in the person of Jesus. So imagine this setting. Imagine me and my wife, we're going to take a, a road trip and we ask somebody to house sit our home. We say, hey, can you come house sit our home? I don't know what people do when they house sit. Not much to, to watch after, but you know, water the plants. If we had a pet, they would take care of the pet. Um, they'd watch over things. They would house sit. That's what you do. And so they, they do that and we're going to be gone for a couple of weeks, so could you house sit? And they, they, as time progresses, they get more and more comfortable in our house. 
They're getting so comfortable. They're, they're beginning to actually look around at the decor and they're like, you know, maybe, maybe I should update the decor. You know, I don't really like that painting. They have a picture of themselves that what, they need a picture of me. And they start to replace the decor of the house with their own decor and they begin to get really comfortable. Many of the chores, the duties that were left for them to house sit kind of go to the wayside and before you know it, the house is kind of unkempt and there's messes piling up and before they know it, they, they get this kind of harebrained idea to change the locks on the doors. They're like, you know, I love this place. This place, it was, it's, it's mine now pretty much. I mean, I feel so, so at home and they go and they change the locks for the doors and they are so delusioned in this whole thing that they begin to believe that the house belongs to them. Like somehow the name on the deed has been changed to their name. And so then Tani and I return and we come to the door and the door is locked and we peer in the windows and our decor is all changed about by this person. And this is the setting that Jesus walks into. He walks into the return of his house and it is not the house that he is gonna give his blood for, he's gonna give his life for. His name is on the deed of the house. But here are these people who have been They've fallen into this stupor, this delusion that somehow that place belongs to them and, and they're just having a heyday out of it. They're making a racket out of it and Jesus is not gonna have it. So I'm not saying that's us, but in so many ways, it is us. We replace the Lord's opinions with our own. We, re we replace the Lord's preferences and the Lord's priorities with our own. We come to consume, we come to attend rather than minister to the Lord and attend to him rather than make sure he's present. Let's read this in verse 12. It says, and Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and, and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said, that, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Just <laughs> reread that sentence. People are being healed and kids are singing praise to Jesus. And the religious get angry. May it never be said of us that we miss out on recognizing the precious work of Christ. And they said to them, do you hear what these, these ones are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared, prepared praise. Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. I simply want to present to you this morning things that the, the house of the Lord is not, things that the house of the Lord is. What the house of the Lord is not. There's four things I see in this passage. The house of the Lord clearly is not, and may we have this established in our hearts this summer as a church family. The house of the Lord is not something to be sold, something to be peddled desperately that people may come Purchase what we have. We proclaim the good news boldly. 
purely as we point people to Jesus, but the house of God may never be something that is sold. Jesus says, come, those without money, come. Come receive the good news. So the house of God is not something to be sold, and here are these ones who were making a, a racket out of the courts of the Lord. They were merchandising the things of God. So that's number one, the house of God is not something to be sold. Second, the house of God is not something to be bought. So this goes both ways in this transactional way of religion. There are the, the peddlers of things that reduce the things, the holy things of God is something that can just simply be sold. There are, then there are the consumers, the ones that actually make the whole economy work. So may it be established in our hearts that the house of God is not something to be bought. In our current, common, modern vernacular, that means it's not something to be consumed simply for your pleasure and per, per your preferences. The house of God is not something to be bought. Number three, the house of God is not a means to our end. What was the next thing the Lord did here? Jesus came in and he turned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those that sold pigeons. There were these ones that imagined or came up with this this way of making extra money in the, the courts of the Lord, what would they do? Scholars say that they would charge 12 times the price for a dove sold within the, the temple courts versus what could be bought out on the streets. So this is just a complete racket. In one sense, you'd think that they were doing a service because they're providing sacrifices for worshipers to bring to the Lord in the courts. But... What really often was happening was people would bring their sacrifices to the courts of the Lord. They would say, oh, those are no good. You have to buy the more expensive ones here, the ones 12 times the price. And then you can go and your, your sacrifices will be acceptable to the Lord. It was a complete racket. And oftentimes the, the prophets would be going to the family of the, the high priests. And so it was a complete abomination to the Lord. And Jesus was going to make clear his opinion about these things. And he turned the tables, the money changers. So, and so often we reduce church and the house of God down to a means to our end, either soothe our conscience or to get a social fix. And Jesus says, it will not be. The house of God is not a means to our end. What's the fourth one? The fourth one, he describes them as a den of robbers. He, he compares them to a den of robbers. So the fourth is the house of God is not a place for darkness. And please understand, when I'm talking about the house of God, I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about this building. I, I feel like I say that enough, but I always just want to continue to establish that the building itself is not holy. What makes it holy is the people of God gathering under the banner of Jesus. So if we gathered in a field or tried to cram into my living room, I'm telling you, it would be holy as we gather under the name of Jesus. That's what makes it holy. So I'm talking about the house of God. I'm, yes, I'm talking about Sunday mornings, and I'm talking about when two or three of us gather in the name of Jesus as his church. Not as the, the fullness of the church, but as an expression of the church. You guys track with me? And 
First Peter chapter two gives us that language as well. He says, the Lord is building us together as living stones to be a spiritual house. So we are the house of God. So the house of God is not something to be sold. It's not something to be bought. It's not a means to our end. Fourth, it's not a place for darkness. So the, he's actually quoting Jeremiah seven here. I'll read it in just a minute, but the imagery that would rise up in the hearers when Jesus says this, in like the worshipers, these are pilgrims that have come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Many of them have gone on um, many mile long journeys. And so what they picture is these roadside dens of robbers, of thieves, of which they would dwell. And these were dens of iniquity. These were dens of darkness. And these thieves would then pillage pilgrims as they came to Jerusalem. They were familiar with that, that picture. And Jesus says that his house has become a den of robbers, similar to those rides, roadside dens of iniquity. I mean, just imagine this comparison. He's describing the temple courts being like a den of robbers. And so in the house of God, there's no place for darkness. Our eyes are on the light of life himself. Therefore, darkness has to go. Things come into the light and darkness cannot exist in light. But what happens is we take our eyes off the light and darkness has, has its place to begin to grow and fester in the house of God. And Jesus says it will not be. It will not be in this age of the church where Jesus is setting aside for himself a people, a Jesus people that look like him and there there will be no darkness. So the house of God is not a place for darkness. So then you may ask, so what is the house of God? The house of God is a house of prayer. Well, before I do that, I'll, before we switch to what the house of God is, let me just read that passage in Jeremiah 7 because this will cut into our hearts. I believe it's on the screen, actually. It will be on the screen, but... Jeremiah 7, verse 8, this is actually what Jesus is quoting. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, Hey, we are delivered, only to go on doing these same abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The fact that the Lord sees it should cut to our hearts. It's both his grace and his judgment that allows us to sense that the Lord really sees us. He sees what we do, what we do and these things matter to the Lord. Everything, everything we do matters to the Lord. And so when we play these games with God, we're really making a mockery out of what he did for us, what he purchased for us on the cross. He purchased for himself a people. This precious, precious blood as we just remembered in communion. So what is the house of God? One, the house of God is a house of prayer. My prayer for you is that in this passage and this morning, that the Lord would clarify and simplify your vision 
of what church really is. Regardless if you've served the Lord for your entire life, for decades, or whether you're a brand new follower of Jesus, my prayer is that the Lord would allow you to embrace such a pure, simple vision for the house of God, for the people of God, for church. You'd be passionate for what the Lord is passionate about. And so the first thing the house of God is, it's the house of prayer. It's sad to me that prayer has become such a foreign concept in the modern church, especially the idea of corporate prayer. The, the mystery of us joining our hearts together to contend for something bigger than any one of us has become a, a real mystery and a, a foreign concept to much of the, the modern church. I believe the Lord is restoring it in his church in this day. I want to be amongst a people that see this place be a house of prayer where there's continually prayer going up to the Lord, contending for our city, the place the Lord has placed us, this, this cry of dependence that, Lord, unless you do it, it's not gonna happen. Unless you move, God. And so prayer really is simple. Prayer is a response to the grace of God. If prayer is overwhelming to you and maybe you struggle to engage in prayer because you don't know how, you say, oh, maybe I'll leave that to the professionals. I'll leave that to the spiritually elite. Please set that opinion aside. Prayer really is simple. Prayer is a heartfelt response to the grace of God. Jesus provided the way through his death, through his resurrection, the sending of his spirit, and prayer is always just a response to that. Prayer is a returning of our hearts to respond to everything Christ did for us. That's what prayer is. And so then it's starting the conversation. Maybe you're distracted, maybe you're worried, maybe you're angry. You turn your heart to the Lord and you say, oh yeah, hey God, you're there. And just like you would a friend, because he is a friend, he's closer than a brother, Holy Spirit comes to live in us and with us. We turn our attention to him and we talk with him. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking with God in response to everything that he did for us. So any concept of prayer where you're striving, you're straining, you have to grimace and you have to change your voice and you have to speak in King James English, you can cast all that aside. You sincerely can. It's not about having the right combination of words. It's not about sounding like I pray or somebody or your spouse prays or how somebody else prays. It's talking with God and Christ opened up the door for you to be able to talk with God himself, which is a big deal and that's prayer. And so then imagine Christ, his fiery vision for his church. It's a people that actually want to be with him people that actually want to talk with him. That's it. A house of prayer, a people that want to be with him. Jesus, in talking about my house should be a house of prayer, is, is referencing Isaiah 56, of which I've spoken at length about in our church family. Isaiah 56, just write it down and check it out. Isaiah 56, that's, where, that's what he's quoting. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And this house of prayer, and Pastor Scott referenced it earlier, are these people that know how to minister to the Lord. They realize this is his house. So we can worship, we can worship him. We can sing these songs directly to him. That's why I could literally sing that song, Worthy is your name, I could sing that for hours. 
So this house of prayer of these people that know how to minister to the Lord, they know they are adopted into his family. They are, they are so satisfied in the name of Jesus. They're at rest in his presence. Those four ideas are all in Isaiah 56. So if you want to learn about being a house of prayer, I encourage you throughout your days, just begin to minister to the Lord. Sing that song to him. Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Do it in your coming and your going. Do it Monday morning. I dare you. I dare you. Sing that on your commute. Doesn't matter how you sound. Just sing that song to the Lord. Sing, I exalt thee. I exalt you. Thee is King James English, so change it to you. Just sing to the Lord. I exalt you. Changes everything. Everything that weighed you down, everything that was making you anxious, everything that was busying your mind comes to a screeching halt in the presence of King Jesus because you realize he's exalted there. Oh yeah, he's worthy. He's worthy of my praise. Doesn't matter what my bank account is. It doesn't matter if my boss is mad at me. I'm, he's worthy. He's worthy of this song in this moment. And, Oh, I could go on and on and on and on about what it means to be a house of prayer. This is such a core part of this simple church that the Lord is restoring in this hour. My house shall be a house of prayer. Second, the house of God is. I hope you're writing these down. The house of God is a house of prayer. Two is the house of God is a house of healing. The house of God is a house of healing. Look what happens naturally as Jesus steps into his own house. The lame come and they're healed. The chronically sick come and they're healed. The religious elite are angry about this, still don't know exactly why. They're angry about it. And sadly, this has become a rarity in the modern church. This becomes an anomaly in the modern church. This should be the norm. This has been a prayer written on the wall in my office ever since we moved to Ames 12 years ago. The divine healing would be normal in the house of God. Because that's what it was when Jesus walked into the room, the presence of God was there to heal. And so if Jesus has his way and Jesus has his people, I t I'm telling you, healing will be there. It's not something that can be con conjured up or manufactured. He'll bring an end to it real quick if people try to um, conjure it up for their, own, for their own gain, just like he does here. But I'm saying in purity and simplicity and humility, when we look at the Lord and depend on him and we realize this is his house, healing will come. And we, we heard it last week when we were um, baptizing people in water, hearing the testimonies of people healing, people being healed in this house in the presence of God. Currently, I'm taking a crew through core class as well, and that's, that class always stirs my heart up afresh for all the testimonies that we, we have right here in our church family of healing, of healing coming to lives, coming to bodies, coming to individuals, simply because Jesus walked into the room. So the house of God is a house of healing. Third, the house of God is a, a house where Christ is exalted. It sounds kind of obvious, but you'd be surprised. 
how many church services you can sit through where Christ is hardly ever mentioned, how many churches are filled with busyness and programs and personalities that actually detract from the exalted Christ himself. And so the song here and the voices of these kids from the mouths of these babes was Hosanna to the son of David. They, they were singing, this is the hope of Israel. This man, he is the hope that we've been waiting for. He, he is the one, you know, we think of David as the, the king of the golden age of Israel. This is the one in that line, this is Jesus. Save us now, Hosanna, save us now, son of David. And they're, they're crying out and they're, they're singing that song. So the house of God is very simply a place where Christ is exalted. If nothing else is remembered, people remember that Christ is exalted in that place. Amongst those people, those people look like Jesus. They're always talking about Jesus. He is exalted in their midst. They always defer to Jesus. They're always pointing people to Jesus. They're always singing about Jesus. That's the house of God. House of God is a house of prayer, it's a house of healing, it's a place where Christ is exalted. The fourth, as you keep reading here, well, kind of in, kind of in that same vein, Jesus points them to that, that scripture from the Psalms, that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So the house of God is a place, this is the fourth, the fourth truth, principle, reality about the house of God. The fourth, fourth is this, the house of God is a place where the simple and childlike will thrive. The simple and the childlike will thrive. You can know that we are, we are veering into a ditch if the little ones are not coming to the Lord, if the simple in heart are not being drawn to Christ, then, we, then I can tell you, I don't even need a prophetic gift for it. I'm just telling you we're veering towards a ditch. If we're not hearing the sounds of the little ones coming to Jesus, both young in age and simple in heart, that is the Lord's heart. And I'm telling you, that's why we're, we bend over backwards to make sure kids have an open door to Jesus, that they have an open invitation to come to the Lord on a continual basis, to continue to say yes to Jesus throughout their days. I, I just have sensed in my heart this passage in Matthew 18, rising up more and more and more to the point that I feel like in the days to come, we're gonna invest hundreds of thousands, in dollars, hundreds of, thousands of dollars into um, giving our kids and youth the best experience possible to encounter the Lord, to receive the fullness of the gospel. But Matthew 18, Jesus himself, so letters of red, says that if you receive one of these little ones, you welcome he himself, you welcome him. So how can we be a house that says we exalt Jesus if we're not welcoming the little ones? And he is saying the kids. So let us welcome the kids, let us welcome the young ones. And as we do that, Christ is exalted. Christ himself walks into that place. And that is actually, that is not to dishonor the older generation. I myself, I'm old. Trust me, I'm old. Yeah, I am. I'm old. It's all relative, Steve. I'm old. But 
I don't even remember what I was going to say. I'm old. And uh, it's not to dishonor the older generation. It really is not. I believe that is actually honoring of the older generation because it's saying we have a mandate. We have something to impart to the next generation. It's actually recognizing that the Lord has done something in our lives and we have a responsibility to steward what he's done in our lives. Therefore, let us turn around and pour into the next generation. Take our eyes off ourselves and turn around and invest in the next generation. There's zero ounce of it in my heart that's somehow patronizing the younger generation to appease them. It's not. It's pointing them to Jesus. I see the heart of Jesus in it. To say, come, little ones, come to the Lord, come. Right now, the invitation is, is open for you to come to Jesus. And that's one reason I, I love Sunday night services so much. When you get an opportunity this fall to join us on Sunday night, Sunday nights are a blast because it's the multi-generational family of God gathered at these front spaces for prolonged periods of time waiting on the Lord. And it's, it's beautiful. It is a party. I'm going to invite Scott to come forward to the keys. So the house of God is a house of prayer. It's a house of healing. It's a house where Christ himself is exalted. And it's a place where the simple and the childlike thrive. I pray this summer that we'll receive that vision. That will respond to the Lord. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.